Hello World. This is uh, not just heathen history, but uh, drunken and substance abusive heathen history. Yeah, Lauren hurt herself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Lauren hurt herself and is on some painkillers right now. All I have is wine. Let me just state for the record that uh, that you should never try to do the splits, mm-hmm. especially after not doing them since the nineties. Yeah, this uh, this may be an uncommonly mellow. <laughs> Seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were talking about Germany unifying. I tell you what, in a few minutes, if this goes well, we might repeat the uh, porn thing that we did. Oh, Lord. So, yeah. So Germany got unified. Okay. So Germany tried to unify in 1848. Germany at this time, as we've said in a couple of previous podcasts, was not really a unified nation at the time. It was a whole bunch of little principalities. Well, some of them pretty big and some of them quite small. Yes, Jay is correct. Dukedoms as big as schnitzel. Yeah, yeah. Some of them were dukedoms about the size of a Wiener schnitzel. Others of them were like Prussia, Bavaria, and Hanover were pretty good-sized power brokers. A pan-Germanic movement tried to unify Germany in 1848, but it foundered on the fact that nobody particularly wanted to surrender power. All of the little princes and dukes and... Fürsten and who knows what, preferred to maintain power rather than just quietly retire and turn everything over to a parliament or something like that. They did try to meet a uh, parliament in Frankfurt. They wanted a constitutional monarchy. They offered it to the king of Prussia, whose response was that he had no desire to pick up a crown from the gutter. I'd rather be, you know, king of Prussia by divine right than king of all of Germany because a bunch of you peasants asked me to. So it doesn't happen in 1848, and quite a lot of Germans leave, uh, either because they're being chased out or just because they're tired of it, and immigrate to the United States. This is when we get big waves of German settlements in the Midwest who introduce wonderful things to American culture, like beer, or lager anyway, This is just for those of us who are from my area here. This is also where we start getting things like New Braunfels, Texas, and that eventually lead to the glory that is Schlitterbahn. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what that is, I'm sorry. Right, right. And ultimately leads to other glories like Scheinerbach and uh, things like that. Anyhow, so it doesn't happen in 1848, but... Some of the crowned heads of the German Confederation decide that it would be great to unify Germany as long as one of them could be on top, and Prussia ends up taking the lead. In 1870, Prussia fights a war against France and wins and goes all the way to Paris. There's still conflict over exactly who's going to join, but Prussia manages to beat Austria in war in 1869. And Austria's possessions in what is now Germany end up signing on with Prussia and leaving Austria, or at least leaving the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And finally, in a fit of patriotic fervor in 1871, in Versailles, which they've conquered, Prussia leads the signing of you know, the treaty that founds Germany as a nation. 
in January of 1871. And everybody is blown away because there's this fit of patriotic fervor because, you know, they've just kicked France's butt. They're tops of the military league. And everything is surely coming up roses and daffodils. Except. Yeah, except not everybody's into this. Right. For one thing, liberal opinion would still have preferred a parliamentary democracy. What they actually got is a parliament, except the real power is with the Prussian Hohenzollern dynasty of kings and their aristocratic allies, the traditional big landlords or the Junkers, which is not what the original revolutionaries quite had in mind. Second, there's an economic depression in 1873 that's called, sensibly enough, the Panic of 1873, which is a pretty good name for it. And that hits North America as well. So it shows unification doesn't solve everything. There's still, you know, it was great and a fit of euphoria. But once that wears off, you still have, you know, the same problems that any country has to go through. And unification doesn't fix all of that. You have the whole thing where, you know, we've talked about in the past how a lot of times, especially kind of previous to this, you had a lot of nations that unification or identity was very much defined by language right but not every german-speaking country decided to come play ball right austria had been the seat of the Habsburg emperors of the holy roman empire austria and prussia had been bickering over who was going to rule the roost and then in i think i said 1869 it was 1866 when austria and prussia fought the Seven Weeks War, as they called it, and that pretty much ensured that Austria was going to get left out of the German Union. Austria gave up its holdings in Germany, but Austria did not sign on to become part of Germany. But there were still lots of conservatives in Austria that still wanted to join this greater Germany. And a right. lot of the conservative nationalist, supranationalist Germans of the time actually came from Austria, including one guy by the name of Guido Liszt, who we'll probably have to talk about in a later episode. Dude, Guido's getting his own episode because there is, I've been reading because I've been, so one of the books that I have been reading and I would hold my phone up to the computer so you could see it, but I have my camera mm -hmm. off because I haven't showered today because, right. uh, yeah, little accident, can't stand up. But uh, one of the books I've been reading is The Occult Roots of Nazism, and mm. woo doggy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, we List know is, <laughs> yeah, List is going to need to get his own show. Oh, uh, man, he's, a, he's, he's something. Right. Yeah, and I was actually thinking of there was another super conservative who always regretted the fact that uh, Austria was um, not part of the German Confederation and tried to make that a reality. That, you know, short guy with a little toothbrush mustache that you might have heard of. Oh, yeah. He's kind of boring. Yeah. So you have this kind of thing where, and also just to touch back on something that I totally didn't get to make my joke about and very sad because we kind of glossed, but, you know, mm -hmm. that was the sea of the Habsburg emperors. Habsburgs, as you remember, their family tree is a wreath. Mm -hmm. They eventually were somehow members of every royal family because of all the intermarriage and they are like the prime poster children for why you should not marry your cousins. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. So just a second. Yeah, you you end up with monarchs that are you know anatomically improbable as it seems. They're mostly Chin. Indeed. Yeah, if the Habsburgs had ruled China, they'd be the Chin dynasty. Ben, that was awful. I Thank appreciate you. it, but Thank it was you. awful. Thank you. All right, so, Inspir- Odinic inspiration here, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> oh, my my wife says I'm going to have to drink every time I do a pun. This, this oh, could end up being a pretty short. Uh, podcast we're gonna be so wasted mm-hmm. that's the case so you have in addition to all the austria stuff with austria you also have your this is also the era of the industrial revolution mm-hmm. so and- if you've listened to the if you've listened i guess to oh wait i keep referring podcasts that we've recorded that haven't come out yet so coming up on monday mm-hmm. we will have we will start our kind of romantic series um, where we'll talk a lot about this, but just very briefly, you have this whole era where people are starting to move from the countryside to the cities for work as, as industrialization is taking over. And in result, there is kind of this backlash where mm-hmm. people are saying that, you know, they think that urban living is unhealthy and, oh, this is such a huge loss for the traditional ways of not just Germany, we're talking Germany in specific, but just really everywhere. There was kind of this this idea that what was going was going against the natural order of things. Yeah, you, you get this in Britain at the same time as well. You get this fondness for, you know, rural life and, you know, old peasant customs and ancient traditions and things like that right at about the time that the actual – ancient customs and peasant traditions are seriously starting to go under. Yes. Uh, Because of industrialization, migration to the cities, loss of the traditional folkways, people start appreciating that right at about the time it's disappearing. And Germany at the time is leading the world in science and technology. They basically invented the PhD as we know it now. They're scrambling for colonies. They end up with Tanzania and Namibia for a while in Africa. They've grabbed some colonies in the Pacific. They're sending their Navy out around the world. They are, you know, pushing really hard to become a world power. The flip side, though, is there's that feeling of loss. There's that feeling of, you know, we're losing our identity in the struggle to be an imperial capitalist powerhouse. You know, we're losing some of what it is to be truly German. I always feel like that's a, that always seems to be a political talking point driver. Because it's not just here, but if you go through the 20th century, Mm -hmm. you start hearing the same thing. Oh, you know, I feel like almost every conservative movement, Mm -hmm. part of their driver is, oh, things are changing and we're no longer real fill in the blanks. Right. Well, I mean, shoot, listen to country music these days and you get the same and and you get the same thing, you know, the sort of idealization of down home rural values trying to hold on against the urban storm. Daddy won't sell the farm if you remember well, that but, song. So let's go back let's go back country music nineteen eighties. Okay. And the Judds, Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. You know, there was very much you know, or who's saying daddy's hands? There's always this very nostalgiaism 
Mm-hmm. But I mean, even in, I would argue, you know, even in classic rock, oh, that song, Drift Away. Oh, give, yeah. Give me the Beach Boys to free my soul. Yeah. Okay. I mean, nostalgiaism is not is nothing new, but just this whole idea of political identity and anything new and different is somehow going to fundamentally change who we are is still today something you you see it in i would say the divide in heathenry even mm-hmm. you know if and not the i'm talking about theological conservative versus kind of your more experimental sorry I've, I've been earwormed all i can think of is way back in the country back up in the hills <laughs> something 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 where the folks are real you know that one yeah that's where i'm from and i'm proud to say we're from the country, and we like it that way. See, when you well, first started singing, I was um, out in the country past the city limits sign. Well, there's a honky tonk. <laughs> <laughs> so, just give this up and just do straight country music. But um, so, for those of you who don't know, uh, who don't mm-hmm. know me or didn't listen to any of my other podcasts, I used to be a country music radio DJ. So uh my vast, especially classic country, I have an insane encyclopedic knowledge of classic country because I used to host a classic country call-in yeah. show. Hey, uh Lauren, you know that when you play rock music backwards, you get satanic messages. What do you get when you play country music backwards? Well, you get out of jail, your dog back, your truck back, your wife back, and your house back. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. My wife says I have to drink now. <laughs> Anyway, where the heck were we? We got so yeah. There's the same kind of conservative appreciation where you know Germans who are living the city life and engaged in the struggle for empire and for prosperity get a bit of yearning for going way back in das country, back down in der hills, living in Germany where the folks are real. Uh, something like that. We have the the schnitzel and the strudel and the brothers cream. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, strudel and the brothers grim. Well, we have an episode on the brothers grim coming up in a couple. Of, pretty much, it's German romanticism, but it might as well be. It's pretty much the brothers grim and Fogner coming up. You guys are going to really right. like it. Mm. So, and there's that idea though that these. Traditional, but these traditional kind of life ways and customs that were fading were very much what spawned an interest in studying history, collecting folklore like the Grimm brothers did. Right. And trying to use it as a key to national unity and national renewal. And what happens is that no sooner is Germany unified than Germany invents the hippies. That you didn't realize that hippies are a product of German engineering. Like, seriously, they got so into, it kind of reminds me of the 80s in the United States when people got really into astrology, parapsychology, or Mm. magic Eastern religions. Yeah, it's a little more like the 60s in the United States. And as we'll see, there's a reason for that. But yeah, right about the time that Germany is becoming this scientific, technological, and military powerhouse, there's this big surge of interest in magic in astrology, in ESP, in parapsychology, Eastern religions, ecology. This um, evolutionary biologist named Ernst Haeckel 
actually coins the word ecology and this whole movement of going, you know, going back to nature and uh, leading a more natural sort of lifestyle. And you see this spread across Europe and into the United States mm-hmm. as well, because you see this is when you're starting to see the rise of mediums. and Yeah, you've got mediums going on. You've got astrology going on. You've got this whole American school that would end up influencing the New Age movement much later, this idea called New Thought, mm-hmm. which has actually uh, come back in the guise of the prosperity gospel. So, Ben, what do you call a child psychic who is on the run from the law? Um, I would call that a small medium at large. <laughs> Thank you. Try the veal. And I do want to stop for a second. If you guys are listening and you appreciate what we do and you can, right now the Troth Threadhammer program is uh, fundraising to help victims of COVID-19. So if you can go over to the troth.org click donate and choose the COVID-19 fund and help out, even if it's only a few dollars, we'd appreciate it because this goes to help other heathens who are having a hard time now because of COVID-19. And so that's kind of our whole point of doing this one, so that you'll stay home and entertain yourself and two, to help raise some funds to help other heathens. Heard that. We do our best to try to be a community And one of the things that community members need to do is help each other out. And by the way, this is Fern. This is one of our cats who has evidently decided that um, she's not received enough food or something like that. Yeah, some of you guys may know I'm actually considered, I'm an essential, I'm in healthcare IT. I'm an essential worker. I've been working weekends, working very long hours, and I'm not even half of, you know, there are so many people who are really putting doctors, nurses, epidemiologists who are really out there putting their lives on the line for this. So yeah, please hail you know, remember them and definitely hail to them. And also, you know, it's just good to help. So we're going to go back here and talk about this idea. They're going in this thing. There's astrology, parapsychology, magic, Eastern religions, alternative medicine, back to nature. And that's yep. when we get theosophy. Theosophy, of course, was a movement founded by a Russian medium named Helena Blavatsky. Blavatsky, yeah. Blavatsky. Oh, look at me. I got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because see, Ben speaks Russian, so mm-hmm. I, I always fall behind. Who received psychic communications from the masters who preserved ancient wisdom. Yeah, there's these ancient masters living in various underground places of power, notably a sort of underground mystic capital in the Himalayas called Shambhala, who are able to communicate psychically with sufficiently advanced people and uh, teach them this ancient wisdom, pieces of which have been preserved in all religions, but uh, the greatest part of which, you know, the closest to the real truth is is Hinduism. And this wisdom is going to help humanity on its slow evolutionary path which runs through a whole bunch of stages over a ridiculously long period of time upwards towards ultimate perfection. And humanity is evolving through this series of what are called root races. We're right in the middle of the fourth root race, which is the Aryan. And yeah, that's kind of a loaded term, but Blavatsky didn't necessarily mean a 
physical race by this, but there were signs of new races that would come and eventually replace the Aryan, and eventually everybody evolves towards you know, the highest of the root races, and then the cycle starts all over again at a higher level. So then we start getting into the age of Aquarius and all that? I don't know. Yeah, something, something like that. And this feeds into, I mean, in the new age today, you know, you get people that can channel communications from spiritual masters, although sometimes they're aliens instead of, you know, Hindu sages in the Himalayas. Sometimes they're Hindu <laughs> sages from planet Weibo or something like that. I laugh because we had a, a group here for a long time that has since moved on who believed that all the gods were ancient aliens. And so mm-hmm. I just, I had to giggle a little, but yeah, they have that. It, there's always been people who claim to channel angels or masters or mm-hmm. whatever. It That's not a, a new thing you know you you see in the Tudor era mm-hmm. there was a woman who that Henry VIII would consult and I cannot remember her name who spoke to angels mm-hmm. and she was the seer who spoke to angels who always told him he was having a son and he never did mm-hmm. so I don't know why he kept going back to her but right here we are I guess you could say it's a rare medium that's well done oh Ben drink Right. Okay. So theosophy is really big. Eastern religion is really big. There's this youth movement. It's uh, it's called the Jugendbewegung. And part of its legacy is this guy named Richard Schirmann, uh, who founded the first youth hostel in 1912 and kind of started the hosteling movement. Similar to that, although not quite the same thing, is this youth movement called the Wandelvogel, uh, the wandering bird movement, uh, where you get these groups of teenagers that will set out on these long hikes, you know, lasting for days across the German countryside. And they'll camp out at night. Uh, the Wandervogel actually developed a uh, tent design that they would use that's still in use in Europe. They'd spend time singing folk songs, doing folk dances, you know, playing guitar and things like that and having, you know, bonfires at night. And just generally the idea was to reconnect with the German land, reconnect with the essence of, you know, Germany. Not going to lie, it sounds very scouting. Scouting was actually kind of a parallel movement, but scouting was kind of led by the adults. Wandel Vogel was supposed to be the teenagers themselves organizing and uh, doing all of this on their own initiative. Listen, I'm not saying that this sounds like a, a recipe for shenanigans, but this sounds like a recipe for shenanigans. There was one Wandel Vogel group that did get into pretty serious trouble when the leader started talking about how important it was for the same-sex members of the von der Vogel groups to fall in love with each other and how this was perfectly natural. So, yeah, there was a certain amount of shenanigans going on there. I, um, I have no argument with that, but go on. <laughs> okay, right. And there was this entire movement called Lebensreform, life reform, which was seen as kind of an antidote for the evils of modernism. Germans develop things like vegetarian diets, organic farming, natural foods, 
really you know, where the hippies. Yeah, this is where the Germans invent the hippies. There's this guy that publishes uh, something called the mucus-free diet. No, I, I mean, I think it means not that you don't eat mucus, it's that you're not supposed to produce mucus is is the idea, I think. Oh, goodness. Yeah, they're into they're into health food. Uh, there's somebody develops. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a raw food diet, where you know you eat as much of your food as possible uncooked. That gets developed in Germany at this time. Alternative medicine, curing what ails you by baths in in medicated water or by squirting jets of water at you. Um, so what you're telling me is. They got into Eastern religion. They were really into getting naked. So, yeah, they there were raw foodist, nudist, Buddhists. Yeah, they were raw foodist, nudist, Buddhist. Very good. I'll drink to that. Oh. And yeah, the nudist. Oh my God's the nudist. <laughs> um, yeah, you could you could easily get the impression that like half the population of Germany was running around buck naked all the time. In Lebensreform, there were people that proposed. Clothing reform. And remember, this is the time when women have to wear bustles and corsets and things like that. And the Some petticoats, them- lobster petticoat, lobster bustles. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I'm I'm really into Victorian Edwardian clothing construction. I, I got you on these. All right, but there, there were Lebensreform activists that wanted more natural clothing that didn't constrict you and allowed the, you know, proper physical form to to flourish. Yes. Early designs weren't very flattering. They used to call them reform sacks. Yes. Uh, but they eventually got around to designing dresses that looked a little nicer and didn't, you know, bind up the feminine figure the way that uh, previous styles had. You start getting women's sporting outfits, bicycling outfits, or they call mm-hmm. them costumes. You start seeing women wear pants even. And you got people this that- kind of dress reform. Yeah, you got you got people that advocated for natural fibers only or maybe for linen only or something like that. And then, of course, you had people that advocated for not wearing any clothes at all. The most extreme, of course, I call – I love the natural mention. Oh, yeah, the natural mention. Natural mention. Yeah, these were – that means German for the nature men – and uh, they were sometimes also called the new prophets because they grew their hair and grew beards. And when they wore anything, they'd wear robes and sandals. Some of them would live in rural retreats and, you know, grow their own food and eat, you know, nothing but pure vegetarian diets. Some of them would wander through Germany, just teaching their ideas to anybody that would listen uh, they'd they'd live in out, caves. Yeah, they'd, they'd sleep in caves or they'd sleep outdoors and they'd meditate every day. And, you know, they, like I said, you know, the hippies are a product of German engineering. These were hippies 100 years before, you know, the hippie movement in, in the United States. So they had these, um, I always find this very interesting because if you think about it, this just seems like another version of the ornamental hermit. Or the hermit, you know, basically they're going to live out there. and But yeah, there's, I can just see this, a bunch of guys running around in robes mm-hmm. or naked telling yeah. other people, I mean, you think you think vegans are sanctimonious now. Mm-hmm. Well. Oh my God, this was the German, this was the 19th century version of CrossFit. Um, 
because you know I, I don't think it was quite that regimented i don't think well i just meant as far as you know how you can find out someone's doing crossfit oh they'll tell you yeah pretty much right well, not not everybody was nearly as extreme as the not to mention were, but that's what I'm saying. You know, the not to mention like, were the cross. Like Richard Wagner tried to eat a vegetarian diet at least for a while, or at least tried to abstain from cigarettes and alcohol. Yes, and then some of these guys came to the U.S. So we had a guy named Bill Pester who lived in Palm Canyon near Palm Springs. There were some other ones in Topanga mm-hmm. Canyon, California, who were known as the Nature Boys. Right. Not to be confused with Ric Flair. Right. So, yeah, this community of German immigrants settles in Southern California. They get called the Nature Boys, and they attract some American-born followers, including one by the name of Eden Abes, who was uh, American-born but the son of uh, immigrants. And uh, he became a songwriter, and he wrote a song called Nature Boy, which was a tribute to Bill Pester, kind of the first of the nature boys to emigrate to America. And uh, since naturally we do a lot of singing on here, Nature Boy actually became a, uh, a chart hit. It was the first chart hit of a gent by the name of Nat King Cole, that you might have heard of. And it goes, There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far, over land and sea, a little shy and sad of eye, but very wise was he. Should I keep going? No, we don't want to get hit with a copyright ding. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I can't do too much of that. Although when it became a hit, Abez's agent kept trying to give him his royalty checks and Abez kept uh, refusing to accept them. Uh, he was that devoted to the, the simple lifestyle. Yeah, there were others. Pester for a while lived close to a settlement of Native Americans out in the California desert. And they seemed to have accepted him. I don't know if they technically adopted him into the tribe but they had great respect for him because he was the first white man that they'd seen who wanted to live as simply as they did, you know, who wasn't out for grabbing land or money or what have you, but simply wanted to be, you know, wanted to live the simplest life possible on that land. So uh, we also have uh, Robert Bootson who right. came over. He was known as Gypsy Boots Mm-hmm. And uh, he, in fact, is kind of credited as being the person who inspired the hippie movement in yeah. the 1960s. Yeah, he's he's sort of the living link between the uh, the nature boys and the hippies. You know, he was still going strong when the 60s came around and he became, you know, a figure in uh, in the rise of the hippie movement. And then, um, you know, yeah. who else was heavily influenced by this uh Lieben's reform and nudism. Was it Hermann Hesse? Well, that too. But who have we talked about? I'm not sure who we've talked about. Gerald Gardner. Oh, yeah. Gerald Gardner. Yeah, he was big into nudism. And uh, other things. And Gerald Gardner, of course, is another one of those historical figures that's got his fingerprints all over paganism. Mm-hmm. Yep. He, of course, would go on to found Wicca as we know it. 
And yeah, he was big into the whole nudist thing as himself. So we also have these proponents of Lebensreform who, instead of going the let's go live naked in the woods. Mm-hmm. Let's go wear clothes and make more money elsewhere. Right. And so they started fil- uh, founding schools of alternative medicine. You have Benedict Lust, who immigrated to the U.S. in 1892 and founded Naturopathy mm-hmm. with a school and retreat center in New Jersey, which for those of you who aren't familiar, New Jersey is actually pretty beautiful. It is the Garden State. And they taught vegetarian diet, herbal medicine, homeopathy, hydrotherapy, and also introduced this quaint Indian practice called yoga. Mm-hmm. Yep, there was Lust who's doing all that. Another guy named Carl Schultz became a naturopath in Southern California. Arnold Eret, who'd invented the mucusless diet and touted all the benefits of raw food. Uh, well, he emigrated in 1914. A guy named Hermann Zexauer emigrated in 1917 and ended up running a health food store in Santa Barbara. So an awful lot of the, you know, what we think of as the California culture of granola, you know, all the flakes and nuts out there, a lot of that actually stems from immigrants from Germany coming out of the Lebensreform movement. Yes. And just to answer the question that was asked in the channel, Alex, I verdict that you can, in fact, wear clothes, mainly because I don't want you to get arrested to wear clothes and live in the woods. Mm-hmm. That's my verdict on that. Okay. But there was a uh, famous guy who did get arrested for nudity. And um, it was, in fact, a couple of artists. But artists that were affiliated with Lebensreform developed this style of art called Jugendstil. Uh, Jugendstil means youth style. uh, But specifically, it's named for a um, magazine a magazine called Jugend or uh, Youth. And um, yeah, it's the, really cool. the German version of Art Nouveau. If you've ever seen, these seem to hang in the kitchen of a lot of friends of mine, especially back in the 90s. Uh, they're these old, you know, 100-year-old French ads for wine and liqueur and things like that that seem to involve a lot of... Um, women in very flowing draped clothes basically it's very much a celebration of health and youth and nakedness mm-hmm. right okay health, nudity youth and scanty clothing it's nudity because it can't be naked because if it's naked that means you're up to something right well that that's the difference between being naked and being naked this is something that's not always appreciated outside the south you can be naked in a doctor's office, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're naked, you're enjoying it. So we have artists like um, Fidus or well, Hugo. Yeah, his name was Hugo Hypnel, but he was an apprentice to a guy named Carl Wilhelm Diefenbach. And Diefenbach was one of these guys that wore robes when he bothered with anything and lived out in the wilderness where he did his art. And he actually got arrested for nudity. And the story that I've heard is that Hugo Hypnel, his pupil, Mm -hmm. stood by him during this time and uh, was willing to go to prison for him. So Diefenbach gave Hugo Hypnel the nickname Fidus, faithful in, in Latin. 
So he's an interesting character himself. Mm -hmm. Fidus, he did all this art depicting beautiful, slender, naked people. Okay, naked. Right. So, well, he would say they were naked, not naked. This is true. Most of it's not erotic as such. It's not. They're just frolicking and in the Mm -hmm. nature and engaging in ritual of some sort. Right. Was I can guess what kind of ritual because yeah, he was a theosophist most of his life. Right. He was a theosophist. A lot of his works are, you know, the naked bodies are supposed to be metaphors for the soul. They're not necessarily actually naked people. And many of them are quite innocent. Some of them, you have to worry a little bit about the age of the models. Put it this way. You ever have a conversation with somebody on the internet that you really would rather not have who feels the need to explain in great detail why it is perfectly natural for a 45-year-old part-time programmer who's still living with his parents to have a deep personal interest in 14-year-old girls? Um, That's like every other episode of 90 Day Fiancé. Every other episode of what? 90 Day Fiancé. Of 90 Day Fiancé. Where you have these 50-year-old men bringing over their 19-year-old girlfriends from from an impoverished country. Oh, okay. Yeah, people like that would probably be really into Fetus's artwork. It's not overtly sexual, but some of it is kind of cheesy, and some of it is just a little bit, we got to wonder about this. I do appreciate that this man was, like, super into self-promoting. Oh, yeah. He sold postcards of his work. He basically was Etsy before Etsy was a thing. Right, and I've actually got one. I managed to snipe this on eBay. And those of you that have seen our Facebook page might recognize this. Can you can you see that? Yes. Okay. That is probably Fidus's most famous image. And he actually did something like eight different versions of it. It's a um, naked guy, naked teenager at about, you know, three-quarter butt angle, standing on a rock, raising his eyes directly to the rising sun. There were actually, like I said, he did eight different, might have been 12. He did a bunch of versions of this. There were other artists at the time who did versions of this, who did naked people, you know, arms in what's called full Elha's stance in heathenry, raising their arms to greet the sun. This particular it, image is called Lishgebet. It uh, looks very Wiccan. Yeah. Lishgebet it, it does. It looks very Wiccan. to the light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, this is one probably is the single most famous image that he did. And, you know, this is one of the best selling postcards that he put out. And it gives you some idea of what a lot of his art is about. It's about, you know, youth, vigor, vitality, wilderness, joyous greeting of the powers of nature, you know, very much kind of stands in for this whole Lebensreform thing. You know, John, Buddhism, physical health, yeah. youth, strength. John Byrne is absolutely correct. Three-quarter butt angle is an excellent name for a band. Oh, yeah, that would be <laughs> that would be a real good one. Yeah, three-quarter butt angle. I like yeah. that. So in addition to you have this art, you also have these utopian communes and retreat centers open up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are trying to open, you know, resorts where you can go and take, uh, you know, what they called... 
you know, sun and air baths, which means running around naked or do meditation or grow your own pure organic produce or, you know, eat health food and things like that. Probably the best known was this place in Switzerland, uh, just outside a village called Ascona that was called Monte Verita, a mountain of truth in Italian. And uh, frequent visitors included people like Carl Jung, who's developing his ideas of the collective unconscious at this time and drawing directly on mythology. And the novelist Hermann Hesse is also spending a lot of time there. Hesse actually spent a week as the disciple of one of these natural mention named Gusto Graser, and then decided that uh, sleeping in the nude in caves in the middle of winter was just not his idea of a good time. But I mentioned Hesse. Hesse got to be popular again in America in the 1960s because he wrote novels that drew on Lebensreform and meditation and going out into the woods. He wrote this very psychedelic allegory of his journey called uh, The Journey to the East, which was a big deal. You might have known his novel Steppenwolf about this tormented esthete who finds relief through sex, drugs, and it wasn't rock and roll yet, sex, drugs, and jazz. And a number of books that got popular in the 1960s because they're drawing on Lebensreform and a lot of the counterculture could really identify with Hesse. And he was a big visitor to Monte Verita and drew on those experiences in his work. And Fidus, by the way, also got rediscovered in the 1960s after he himself was dead because that Jugendstil art style of naked people, many of them frolicking, others of them doing these kind of spiritual things, oftentimes with sort of power and force shown by rays and wiggly lines and things like that, that all got rediscovered by the psychedelic art movement. So an awful lot of fetuses work looks kind of like posters for the Fillmore West auditoriums, grateful dead shows in the early 1970s, that sort of thing. If you've ever looked at, you know, concert posters from this time, you've seen artwork inspired by Fidus, except Fidus wasn't quite so big on drawing dancing teddy bears. So interestingly enough, Ben, we have something in our backyard that was uh, actually heavily influenced by this. Do you now? We do. It's called Hot Springs. A lot of the treatment methodologies Mm-hmm. used in hot springs in the uh, 19th century are definitely uh, descended from some of these ideas that were brought over to the U.S. because of Lieben's reform. Hmm. I'll be darned. And if you're ever here mm-hmm. and in the in the area, I highly suggest taking the tour of the uh, bathhouse that is still open, the Fordyce. Mm-hmm. And uh, you will learn Wait, quite a bit. Fortnite? I took a group of heathens there, in fact, uh, that were visiting last October. Wait, there's a bathhouse in Fordyce? Or Pagan Bride. Wait, there is something in Fordyce other than... My wife expresses surprise that they actually take baths in Fordyce. Not Fordyce. Fordyce Bathhouse. 
Oh, it's called the Fordyce Bathhouse, but it's in Hot Springs. Okay. Yes, this is the this is the um, Hot Springs various bathhouses. The Fordyce Bathhouse is the one that's owned by the state, the National Park System. Okay. And okay, but I was result, thinking of the town of Fordyce, the Arkansas. That, yeah. You know, do the and enable you to basically do tours and this, that, and the other. And it's the, the one that Fordyce, is still Arkansas. the constructed bathhouse. Yeah. I mean, the main, the only claim to fame that Fordyce, Arkansas has is that the Rolling Stones got busted for drug possession there once. Aside from that, that and the fact that their high school mascot is the Red Bugs. Yeah, I thought you were talking about the town of Fordyce, but no, okay, the Ford- there's a Fordyce bathhouse in Hot Springs. I got yes. you. Yes, same named after I believe the same family. Okay, but uh, yeah, there. Are, it's actually one of the. Yeah, but it's the one that's owned by. Like I said, it's still like. They still have all the original equipment in it from the 19th century. Oh, okay. Along with lots of really great exhibits like the African-American bathhouses. But hmm, okay. if anybody wants to hear me, I used to, I, I lived in Hot Springs for two years. I graduated high school from there. Most of y'all listening probably know me. So, yeah, you're welcome to um, to hit me up, and I'm happy to tell you all kinds of fun facts about Hot Springs. Also, to Alex and John, yes, it does sound gay. I'm totally into also, yes, more meat. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so we've got Germany as a rising industrial powerhouse, and there's this movement that is kind of a counterculture to it. Where have we heard this before? We have a country that has been victorious in a great war, taking strides to assert itself in the world and become a world leader, and right as it's about there, the young people start suddenly saying, hey, man, Wait a minute. So like television, the U.S. just copies everything from Europe. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I, what worries me is what happened after that, which I'm a, I worry sometimes that we might be copying as well. Lebensreform itself was not really a political movement as such because people all over the spectrum were drawn to it in various, um, you know, various ways, you know, you could be a liberal or a conservative and still enjoy your, you know, raw foodist, Buddhist, nudist lifestyle. Which is not unlike, uh, if you think back to our episodes where we talked about Elsa Christensen or Steve McNallan, who were both very decidedly on the conservative end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. were all very much into ecology and that kind of stuff. It was a very, you know, ecology was very much a in the 60s and early 70s spanned not, you know, the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. But what had happened is that unification had been led by these conservatives, you know, who were very much in favor of the aristocracy keeping its powers and favoring a strong central government. They tended to focus not so much on individual freedom, but on group solidarity. And in part, this is because Germany has not been a unified nation until now. So, you know, in France, it's a little bit different because France has been a unified country ever since, you know, Charlemagne's empire was divided into France, Germany, and butt monkey in between. Sorry, the... Charlemagne's grandson named Lothar basically got beat up on by his two brothers on either side. But yeah, Germany has never, has France, for example, had been a unified nation more or less ever since the 800s. Germany had never been. 
And so unification sends a focus on national solidarity. And this old idea of the Volk comes back, uh, which we, we've we talked about, but I don't know if we've released it yet. But people like uh, Herder and Fichte in the early 1800s had developed. Yes. So you have this idea of the Volk. And the Volk is interesting because it's it's about, okay, it's not necessarily the individuals, but kind of the unified community. Cool, I can get behind that. United yeah. by a common spiritual essence that everyone shared. Cool, I can get behind that. Unity of all people. But that com- essence was starting to be seen as genetic. And then... Right. You wah, have... wah. <laughs> yeah, Herder had originally defined the Volk on the basis of shared language and culture. You know, if you're... If you speak German and you do German things and you, I don't know, wear lederhosen and drink beer and sing about Wein, Vibe, and Gesang, then great, you're a German. But the concept is starting to become more one of descent. The idea is that if you are descended of German stock, you have this kind of innate connection to other Germans and to the German land and this thing that unifies you and that you're a part of and that inspires your very being. Somebody, I forget who at the time said, you know, the best way for any German to advance all of humanity is to advance uh, his own, you know, German Volk. In the Volk you live and move and have your being. And yeah, that essence that binds all people in this Volk is increasingly thought to be genetic, a community of blood. If you're born a German, you share in this spiritual Germanosity in your, well, they didn't know DNA at the time, but this inherent, you know, German spirit is part of you and moves you and lives in you. And uh, that, of course, is amplified by the influence of the United States, who has this wacky idea called eugenics. Right. It had actually been originally developed in Britain uh, by this guy named Francis Galton. Eugenics is the idea that you can improve the species by applying selective breeding principles to humans themselves, encouraging the fittest to have lots of babies and discouraging the unfit from having babies. And it really took off in the United States around the turn of the century because, you know, descendants of the older Anglo-Saxon stock that had populated uh, the U.S. were beginning to throw a ringtail conniption fit about all of these people from bizarre outlandish countries like Poland and Italy practicing bizarre barbaric religions like Roman Catholicism who are flocking into the cities, breeding like rabbits, and threatening to take over. Uh, by the way, it's been it's been declared now that we are the Heathen History Podcast, co-hosted by Lauren, Ben, and Cat. Ah, uh, ah, uh, yes, yes. I have a I have a cat behind my head. So, uh, so yeah. Basically, a lot of the rhetoric in the United States about them immigrants taking over in 1900 has a depressingly familiar sound to anybody who's around in the year 2020. They took our gerbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every wave of immigrants 
gets opposed by people who think that they're ruining the place, finally assimilates, and then they get to the right to hit to hate on the next wave of immigrants. It's the evolution of who is considered white. Yeah. The English, you know, people like Ben Franklin were hated and feared the German immigrants into Pennsylvania. And then the English and the Germans freaked out about the Irish. And then the English, Germans, and Irish freaked out about the Italians and the Poles. And then the English, Germans, Irish, Italians, and Poles freaked out about the Mexicans. And I'm sure 50 years from now, the English, Germans, Irish, this is getting hard. The English, everybody's going to be freaking out about the Uzbeks or whoever the next wave. You already actually see this where there is a certain level in the Hispanic community of racism and bigotry against people who immigrate from primarily Muslim or, you know, people who basically are immigrating from Southeast Asia Mm -hmm. and the near and uh, the Middle East. So, yeah, it just it eventually everyone is going to blame somebody. Yeah. U.S. immigration policy is basically immigrants have worked hard and made this country great until my ancestors got here. And once that happened, they really should have pulled up the damn ladder. Pretty much. And things like this are trickling over to Germany because fear of immigration is expressed as fear of people with inferior genetics coming in and outbreeding the, um, you know, pure white genetic peoples and creating this uh, burden of poverty and disease and all of that that's just going to drag the country down. So so the theological basis for the Quiverful movement, you mean? Well, there were there were attempts to encourage people of proper genetic stock to have kids, but this is also about the time, around about the early 1900s, where states began to pass laws mandating the sterilization of people who are deemed feeble-minded, uh, laws that are held up by the uh, Supreme Court in a rather notorious case called Buck v. Bell, upholding the state's right to sterilize people who are deemed to be you know, a, a drain on the state. This is about the time when you start seeing the first real restrictions on um, immigration beginning in about 1920, if memory serves. Yes. And that whole attitude comes over to Germany. It cross-fertilizes with the hatred and suspicion of Jews that goes back all the way to Martin Luther. And you have this idea that Jews can never be proper German citizens because they're just not our sort of people. They're not part of the Volk. You know, they come from a desert country, so they can't possibly appreciate Germans who come from the forests. You know, and it's dark and shady in the forest, so the Germans are always turning towards the light and seeking after the sun, which the Jews, being a desert people, flee from. They're just naturally not our, the right kind of people, and maybe there's some good ones, but most of them we're suspicious of. So basically, they people just turning themselves into all kinds of pretzel somersaults trying to validate their own racism. Right, right. And you get this in Christianity as well. There's a bunch of religious movements going off at this time. And we've mentioned theosophy. There was this weird Iranian Zoroastrian movement called Mazdaznan. There was this scientific religion called monism uh, that's popular. And then there's all this Buddhism and nudism that we've talked about. Christianity has the problem that they can't get around the fact that, you know, Jesus was actually Jewish. 
Oh, but they will bend themselves into shape to create Deutsch Christian, which believe that positive Christianity, stripped of Judaism, Jesus was in fact an Aryan warrior who had fought against the Jews and sought to win freedom in this world and not the next. So interestingly, this Mm. is very similar theologically to Christian identity movement, who we talked about very briefly in the Elsa Christensen episode, the guy who turned who turned Elsa Christensen on to heathenry or to Odinism mm-hmm. that I can't remember the guy's name. He used to live in Louisiana. He then left and became Christian identity, which is right. this very similar theologically to this positive Christianity. Right, where Jesus is this blonde, blue-eyed Aryan warrior type. And in particular, he wasn't the focus was not on redemption through Jesus's blood sacrifice. It was on his efforts to win freedom for his people in this world. Jesus was seen as this activist figure, you know, not a sacrificial figure, but as a manly warrior type uh, figure. You can get this in certain parts of Christianity today. I saw this painting of Jesus packing an AR-15 and I'm not entirely sure if it's supposed to be a parody or not, but there's a certain sort of muscular strain in fundamentalist Christianity today where Jesus is celebrated for being a, a real manly man. I much prefer the one where Jesus is riding the dinosaur. Yeah, that one's a good one, too. So you have this, like, Christianity that's essentially had a, had a Judaismectomy. Right. Deutsche Christen are the ones who believe in Christianity minus all that Jewish stuff. <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry. Uh, in chat, someone just posted Jesus, too. He's back and he's mm-hmm. pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So then we have the God believers. And Ben, I'm going to let you pronounce this one because it's making my eyes cross a little. Oh, the Gottgläubiger? Yeah, because I am a little loopy, and so, yeah, there's no, I was going to pronounce that. Yes, they believed in, in one God. It just means the God believers, but they didn't believe in Christianity as such. So and they were they, essentially kind of like deists? Yeah. Some of it reminds me of the people who are spiritual but not religious. Unitarians. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, here was the thing. There were a number of German philosophers and mystics, uh, notably this medieval guy by the name of Meister Eckhart, who had emphasized searching for God not in the Bible, but in your own heart, you know, in your own meditation, coming into contact with the God that you could sense within. That sounds very much like a 12-step God, God of your own understanding. Okay. But it it becomes a common theme at the time and that a lot of the people who were drifting away from traditional Christianity, whatever they might call themselves, they shared this belief that God was internal, that God was in you and the moral law was in you and that would guide you. So you could be a Gottgläubiger, be one of these God believers and simply believe in God as you experienced him in your own heart without having to accept any of the doctrines of Christianity. Oh, God, please come inside me. Uh, <laughs> drink. All right, my eyes have seen the glory of... Okay, I'm, 
All right, I'll stop there. Okay. And then so, when yeah. that gets a dose of nationalism, you've got the Deutschgläubiger, meaning the believers in Germanism, who believe in one God, but he's innate in the Volk. He is the one God who is kind of incarnate in, you know, Germanentum, in Germanists. So God will only. <laughs> What's so that? what you're saying is God only dates German chicks. God only dates German chicks, something like that. Well, the ultimate German chick was Matilda Ludendorff. She was the wife of General Erich Ludendorff, who was a hero of uh, World War I. And they founded this group called the Tannenbergbund, which stressed Germans' sacred duty to manifest their inner God, who was innate in Germans and nowhere else. Matilda wrote, the German sees the soul itself permeated by God. The God within you makes it your holy duty to accomplish self-creation. So, and by the way, do you know who hung out with the Tannenberg Bund with Eric Ludendorff and his wife Matilda in the 1930s? Who? Guy by the name of A. Rudd Mills. Of course he did. Whoa, oh, Tannenberg. Right. So, yeah, A. Rudd Mills, who was the character with whom we started this whole series, the Australian guy, comes to visit Germany in the 1930s. This is also the time when, isn't this at the same time where he gives his ideas to Hitler and Hitler's like, thanks, but no? Yeah, he actually walked into the Brown Palace and met with Hitler, uh, but Hitler wasn't particularly interested in any of this. We know he gave Hitler a copy of his book. And we know this because the U.S. confiscated Hitler's library and his books are now in the Library of Congress. But Hitler doesn't seem to have been interested, but he does seem to have hit it off a lot better with uh, the Ludendorffs, who were examples of this Deutschgläubige believing in God innate in Germany. You know, he was buddy-buddy with them and was probably influenced by them quite a bit. You have to think about this whole thing where you essentially have the, you have this, this whole thing. And when you said you have the God within and manifesting God, my first initial thought is, do they get their own planet? That, well, (laughs) funny you should mention that. Well, some of them were pretty sure that, yeah, they did get their own planet and it was called Earth and they had the right to, um, uh, either possess all of it or at least lead everybody else. And then you had this guy who was popular in the Nazi regime called uh, Herbinger, uh, who came up with this idea called the world ice theory, which was the idea that there were these ice moons that the earth had had and they'd crashed to earth and caused terrible climatic changes and destroyed Atlantis and all of that kind of on a par with Emmanuel Velikovsky, although the details are a little bit different if memory serves. And out of that, you get people proclaiming that the Aryans are actually superior beings from another planet or a different plane or something like that. You've read The Occult Roots of Nazism. Uh, you ought to follow that up with a book called Black Sun. I also have that one as well. Okay, yeah, that traces the kind of post-Nazi development of Nazi mythology and you get the the guy who wrote books about you know Nazi flying saucers and a secret Antarctic base and things like that 
There was a movie called Iron Sky that took a satirical look at that, but there were people who seriously believed that sort of thing. Oh, that movie is so great. Yeah, with what, Nazi bases on the moon, that sort yes, of thing? Yes, that, that movie is so great. Right. But yeah, there's, I think that there's definitely, you can start to see, though, where religion and all this thing is kind of coalescing around these racist ideas that are percolating in Germany. Right. And they're getting especially virulent after World War I, where Germany you know, has fought for four years and sacrificed most of a generation. And even though German territory itself is never invaded, because all the war takes place in, you know, unfortunate uh, France and Belgium and, you know, Flanders and all of that, Germany is finally forced to surrender and signs these um, peace treaty at Versailles, which is seen as you know being an utter humiliation because Germany has to give up its navy, reduce its army, you know, completely disarm, you know, all of these things. And in the aftermath of that defeat, you know, Germany's got a great deal of wounded pride and a great deal of economic difficulties. Uh, and some of this is a response to uh, is a response to that. And you also have we've talked about the uh, Deutsche Christen, the Gottgläubige, and the Deutsche Gläubige. There's also people calling themselves actual neo pagans who are finally saying, "Okay, you know, let's quit even trying to be quasi Christian. Let's invoke the old gods and the old myths." And probably the best known is the guy named Ludwig Fahrenklug, who founded the GGG in 1912. And that's the Germanische Gläubensgemeinschaft, the Germanic Belief Society. And he's often considered to be kind of the first of the um, you know, German neo-pagans. What I've seen of his beliefs, though, it's really hard to tell the difference between him and the Deutsche Christen and the Gottgläubige and all of that, uh, because his basic creed was in three, Gott in uns, das sittliche Gesetz in uns, und die Selbsterlösung. Everybody got that? Mm, yeah, sure. Okay, writing it down? Yeah. Okay, it's God in us, the moral law in us, and self-redemption. So I've actually looked up his uh, his uh, book that he wrote, uh, which includes a catechism for the Germanic Belief Society. And the thing is, it never mentions polytheism at all. There's no belief in, you know, multiple deities that I could find. Uh, what he talks about, I've got some of it here. Wir bekennen uns zu der Kraft der Geistes und des Lebens, die das All durchdringt und uns. We are committed to the power of the spirits and the life that permeates the universe and us. It's an energy field made up of all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together. Yeah. Okay, more or less. Yeah, there's this sort of belief in this, you know, cosmic uh, force or um, something like that. Yeah, my wife reminds me that the force is like duct tape. 
It has yes. a light side and it has a dark side and it binds the galaxy together. And, and speaking of this, I'm just putting this out here because I'm doing this, I'm doing research, I'm reading through Dictionary mm-hmm. of Norse Mythology, uh, Rudik right. uh, Steinbeck, and they mention there's a German-based German neo-pagan magazine called Walhalla. Mm-hmm. And I can find nothing else about this. So if you're listening and you're a fan, please, please, if you know what this is, mm-hmm. help me out here. Cause like I literally the only mentions I can find about it are Simbeck's mentions. Mm-hmm. And I really would like to know about this magazine published in 1905 that was about German neo-paganism. But there's a whole slew of lodges and groups and things like that that are working in various ways on national renewal from a conservative standpoint. And a lot of them, I don't really know very much about what they were doing, but there were things like the Nordung League, the uh, Veldandi League. There was one called the Fula Society that maybe we can talk about later because yes. they claim to be an influence on Hitler, although I think they overstate that. I, mean, um, I can claim to be an influence on, I don't know, who's a fam- insert famous pop group here. That doesn't make it true. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, can't you claim to be an influence on Evanescence? I can. In fact, I, I, I actually, that I can actually uh, own up to because... There's a whole long story there, but uh, what did, can, you, did you wake up Amy Lee inside? No, but I, I did get a church camp with them. Oh, okay. And uh, I also, my old neighbor used to date uh, one of the band members. So hmm. I knew some members of the band before they were famous, but it's a small state after all. No, it's just more along the lines of Amy's dad and I worked together for five years. Okay. Cause he now, Lauren knows everyone in Arkansas. basically. I I really do. But her dad was a DJ at the same time I was. So, but you have these, yeah, the Thule Society is definitely its own freaking episode. But um, one of the things is you have all these groups and there probably weren't more than a few thousand people who followed some sort of quote unquote pagan, neo-pagan or pagan belief system back in kind of the heyday of the 20s. Right. The people who did were pretty influential you've got journalists artists illustrators scholars teachers so their influence was far greater than what their numbers would purport right right you know even germans that would not have identified as pagans might have you know read some of the things these groups put out and again it can be really hard to pin the ideology down Reading some of what was being published at the time where they're, you know, they're talking about, you know, a strong leader who accomplishes the redemption of the Teutonic race. And they're describing in in terms that could apply equally well to Jesus, Baldur, or Siegfried, or Parsifal from Wagner's operas. Right. A lot of this kind of free-floating idea about, you know, the German Volk. And the strong leader from on high and the one that will accomplish the redemption of the German race. They're these kind of free-floating motifs that you can, you know, you can see Jesus is doing that or you can see Balder is doing that. 
In fact, there were some mystics that we'll talk about later that believed in, you know, an ancient god named Balder Crestus. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, you could see it in terms of Parsifal. There's a lot of grail symbolism at the time, especially looking at the old medieval German grail romances like Parsifal, the perfect fool that... I know this may not have anything to do with it, but considering it involves the grail, I'm just going to blame Margaret Murray for this. Well, you blame Margaret Murray for everything. I do. (laughs) Well, when it comes to modern paganism, she can take the blame for about 80% of it, so I can't, you know... I think she was working mostly with English grail mysticism, but there were these medieval romances of the grail, probably the best known as a French one by Chrétien de Troyes called Perceval, which gets reworked by a German guy named Wolfram von Eschenbach into Parsifal, which I've got on the brain because it was the subject of Richard Wagner's last opera, which was actually... um, broadcast by the Metropolitan Opera this past Friday, I guess yesterday. And I watched the whole thing, all five hours of it, and it's glorious music, but there's, uh, oof, I don't want to rehash the whole thing. I don't think I could and have it make sense, but. um, And we talked about like the, the pagan who had the biggest influence yet on the Nazi party. What, List or Liebenfels? Uh, Willigut. Carl Maria Willigut. Oh, yeah. I was going to save him for when we talk about about least. I just want to toss this little bit in because I find, because it kind of relates back to what we were talking about. You know, he he created this, he called Wotanism, mm-hmm. which he used ancestral clairvoyant means. But one of the things that he brought into this, which kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with the kind of the progressive Christianity, as they called it was mm-hmm. this idea that Christ, K-R-I-S-T Christ, was the, was the actual Messiah, and he actually was wrongly transformed into the figure Jesus. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, this is like yeah. King Christ of Atlantis. Yeah, Villagut comes up with this ancestral thing that his ancestors were practicing in Atlantis 12,000 years ago called Irmin Christianity. Yes. And like Votanism, which is what Vito List is practicing, is actually um, a false religion that usurped the pure Atlantis religion of Irmin Christianity. Which was the actual Aryan German true religion, and this all came from Germany. And but Yeah. Yeah. V- Villegut was an interesting guy. I, I agree, Alex. This all does sound like a comic origin story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, yeah, interesting time. Okay, Fahrenkrog founds this group called the Germanic Belief Society in 1912. One of his buddies, as far back as 1903, was a guy named Ernst Wachler, who founded this open-air theater in a plateau that was known from ancient times as the Witch's Dance Floor, the Hexentanzplatz, which, because I've had the better part of a bottle of wine... Uh, immediately makes me think of the Dropkick Murphys. <laughs> you know, yes. A little more on the witch's dance floor. Or since this is German, you know, waltz a little more on the Hexentanzplatz. Yeah. Anyway, and that becomes the site for, you know, theatrical productions, including dramas by Ludwig Fahrenkrog, founder of the GGG, who writes, he's not only an artist, 
And Fahrenkrog, by the way, probably his most famous uh, painting is called Den Heiligen Stund, The Holy Time or The Holy Hour, which features, guess what? A naked guy at three-quarter butt view <laughs> raising his arms in a perfect Y uh, to the rising sun. There's a lot of three-quarter butt views going yeah, on. Yeah, there's an awful lot of three-quarter butt views in full Elhaj dance, as we'd call it now. So, yeah, Fahrenkrog did that. And uh, Fahrenkrog wrote these mythic dramas. There was one about Balder. There was one about uh, Waylon Smith. And uh, they get produced uh, here at the Hexentons plots. The Van der Vogel, remember those, the youth movement that was off wandering, you know, through the German countryside, singing folk songs. It used to hold these solstice bonfires and things like that. And there were some other kind of, there was this group called the Sarah Circle that was also doing the same thing. So you have a lot of people that are doing this pagany type stuff. Exactly what they mean by it is not always easy to tell because again, you have these kind of motifs of like, you know, self-redemption and the God within and things like that that are kind of crossing what we think of as theological lines. I'm sorry. I, 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 I had clicked over to look at notes and look at the chat. Yeah. A three quarter, butt runic yoga. That that is the name of my new punk band now. Okay, three quarter butt runic yoga. I like yes. it. I like it. Okay. And there were, I think we mentioned there were communes that people were building at the time or trying to build or fantasizing about that would get people back to the land, you know, get people to experience the true, simple, honest virtue of rustic German peasantry. There would become a whole new generation of Velboyum warrior farmers who would march out and, you know, probably eventually claim a whole bunch of land in what's now Russia and live a simple, virtuous lifestyle of, you know, being warriors who are also farmers. A guy named Heinrich Himmler actually tried his hand at this and tried chicken farming for a while. Uh, wasn't very good at it, I'm told. And um, there was this whole league called the Altamanen of people who were going to, you know, do this sort of thing and, you know, become true, you know, German peasants on the soil. And probably the wildest was this guy named Willibald Henschel's idea for a commune called Mitgalt, which was going to be up in the mountains somewhere. And he was going to pick a hundred carefully selected Aryan men, blonde, blue-eyed, and strong, to live there, study war, learn handicrafts and agriculture, and uh, spend their, their free time impregnating a thousand carefully selected blonde, blue-eyed Aryan women. Okay, so you got to that second part, the entire first half sounded gay and I was in. Okay. But yeah, then you had to add that. Uh, but yeah, you have a thousand women for every hundred men. Sounds you know, like polygamy. Every time a man impregnates a woman, she goes off to have the baby and he's assigned a new woman. Uh, the women are basically trained to be, you know, perfect housewives and perfect mothers and brood mares for the race. Okay, so we're back to now it sounds like the FLDS. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and he lovingly described all of this in a political novel in 1981, 1901, sorry, called Varuna. And I have to read some of this 
This is quoted from a book by Jost Hermann called Old Dreams of a New Reich. And Hermann discusses a lot of the utopias that were being planned at the time, and some people tried to actually build them. And Henschel thought that when his utopia had been built, this would happen. Now the god, I think he means Votan, has shown himself to us, who in truth fulfills the law of life. He will once again raise his people up. Lovingly, his gaze rests upon us. He looks upon us not from temples or the costly shrines of altars, nor from the cross, for he is truly risen. He wanders through clearings, through forests, on paths, waves, and billows. With a measured tread, he strides behind the furrowing plow. He is there where men are tested in battle and in peril where flags flutter and hearts beat with greater courage. He finds pleasure in hard and calloused hands and does not turn his back when sweat flows from the brow. He esteems all the wars of man. His gaze rests musingly on the games of blonde-haired children, prelude of future deeds. Here it gets cringy. He loves tall, broad-hipped women more than men could ever love them. He murmurs to them of future heroes. Gently he leads those who wish to beget. So I think this probably says a lot more about Henschel than about anything else. But this idea of eugenics cross-fertilizing with folkish belief in spirituality to create this great renewal of the German folk is kind of the, the dark side of this whole Lebensreform thing. So Phyllis has a very interesting question that I want to ask. Shoot. Phyllis would like to know is which of these German movements actually translates into shining Germanic cock of salvation. One of them has to. Shining what? Germanic cock of salvation. Shining Germanic cock of salvation. Because one of them has to. <laughs> hmm. I have not come across any phrase like that in my researches so far. I mean, from what I've read about Fetus's lifestyle, I suspect that if there was such a thing as a shining German cock, it was probably his own. Yeah, so anyway, um, I now have completely killed Ben. It's great. I broke him. <laughs> so we have this whole thing going. We have the... Um, I'm sorry, I'm starting to really lose my train of thought, and I'm a little intoxicated from the cider I had in the pain meds, so this is a fun day. It seems to all come down to a whole lot of men who were racist and trying to get laid. So, Ben has disappeared. It's just me now. So, I'm going to remind you guys again, if you're listening to this, you're enjoying this, a couple of things. One, things aren't great right now. So please stay home, social distancing. If you're like me or a lot of our listeners who do have to work, stay safe. We're thinking about you. If you'd like to help out other heathens who are on the front line of this, who may need your help, please consider going to thetroth.org and donating to the Red Hammer Fund to help other heathens to help build up our community. Um, and I am going to try to figure out what happened to Ben. I've lost Ben. 
normally when I lose Ben, he just goes off train of thought. <laughs> but uh, apparently I have fully lost Ben now. And uh, you can donate without being a Troth member. But definitely do what you can. There's Ben. Okay, great. Yeah, sorry about that. My uh, home internet just borked out for a second. It happens. Bobby, you asked where my face is. Lauren is not hiding her face because Lauren had an accident last night and has probably torn a muscle in her leg. And so she's on pain meds and hadn't been able to take a shower. <laughs> so she is not broadcasting video because obvious reasons. Okay, right. Yeah, between Lauren's pain meds and the wine I've been drinking, it's basically, uh, you know, substance abuse, heathen history evening for us all. Do we have any more questions, Lauren? No, I think that was it. So, Ben, we've been doing this for almost two hours. So, Oh, man. What, as heathens, can we learn from all this? A lot of what you see being stated by the Volkish wing of heathenry really has its roots in this. It's not particularly new. And it frightens me a little bit how much you can parallel the history of Germany with the history of the U.S. in that in both cases you have, you know, on the heels of a victorious war, you have this surge in economic prosperity and this huge middle class. And then there's a counter reaction to it, you know, involving, among other things, you know, back to the land and, you know, vegans and Buddhists and nudists and and all of that stuff. And then a conservative counter reaction to that that takes a lot of that stuff, but tries to put it in the service of achieving some sort of national spiritual unity, you know, to make the nation great. And there are certain parallels that I see to this in uh, contemporary American politics. You know what I'm getting out of this? What are you getting out of this? Folkish heathens are basic. They can't even come up with their own ideas. They're using ideas that are like 100 years old. Mm -hmm. Get some new music. You're basic. Yeah I, yeah, I don't even know if they're always copying. Although, I mean, people like Edward Thorson has translated some works of the time. He's actually translated some of Carl uh, Villagut's writings, uh, which frankly do not make any sense at all. And he's translated a lot of Vito Liszt and things like that. And he's working on a history of this time. But I don't know if all folkish heathens have done the same thing, but still there's a, there's a very definite commonality of ideas. This belief in a Volk as a people who are united by this common spiritual essence that probably has something to do with bloodlines and ancestry. I'm going to disagree with you. You are. I am. Because mm -hmm. if you look at the kind of intellectual lineage, which we've talked about extensively on this show, you go from A. Red Mills, who is from this time period. Right. A. Red Mills to Elsa Christensen to Steve McNallan. To McNallan, right. There's a pretty strong intellectual lineage from mm -hmm. this stuff here to, to the folkish heathenry. I don't know that necessarily your average everyday bigot heathen mm. is gonna know where it comes from but these ideas definitely 
have been passed down the line intellectually at least yeah but again i'm not sure that your average heathen is necessarily conscious of where this sort of thing comes from right that doesn't um, mean they're not basic okay <laughs> all right it can be i'm too old and unhip to know exactly what you mean by basic basic basically is this idea that you're just kind of going with the trend with what's hip and you're not necessarily thinking for yourself ah i see okay yeah th there's an awful lot of stuff that gets passed around in the heathen community as, for lack of a better word, gospel of, you know, this is the teaching of the heathens of old. This is the way it is. When, in fact, it isn't necessarily the teaching of the heathens of old. It comes from, you know, fourth-hand, you know, late 19th century German romanticism. Or if it doesn't come from you know, Ludendorff via Rudd Mills, via Christensen, via McNallan, via this, via that. It might come from, you know, one of the scholars of the time who've been so influential, like Wilhelm Grunbeck, who I think we ought to do a separate show on, the guy who wrote Culture of the Teutons. Oh, can we, let's just, let's just stop there and not talk about it because that's a whole nother. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably ought to do a separate show on Grunbeck. Yeah. But there's, there is, I think I, I posted this the other day and basically said, your heathenry is probably influenced by bad Victorian scholarship. So is mine. Yeah. And it's probably also influenced by bad or at least ideologically highly motivated German scholarship. Yeah. It is what it is. So basically we have this stuff. I would argue a lot of this absolutely has been passed down pretty straight into but heathens are not necessarily conscious of where it ultimately no. comes from. No, not at all. It's the kind of thing you absorb if you read certain blogs and sources and things like that. And there may not be a lot of critical attention paid you know, to the culture, society, and time in which it's being developed and what it meant at the time. They may not necessarily know the context of where you know, heathen folkism is really coming from. It reminds me, not unlike the story about the people who cook the pot roast and cut, cut it in half. The people who cook the pot roast and cut it in half? Yeah, these this family, they would cook a pot roast every Sunday. Every Sunday, they'd always cut it in half and put it in two different dishes to cook and never knew why. That's just the way their mom had done it, the way their grandmother had done it. And mm -hmm. it comes to find out they asked their grandmother one day why they do it. It's because their grandmother never had a dish big enough to cook a pot roast in. Okay, so the family did have dishes big enough, but they cut it in half just because. Because grandma always cut it in half. Okay. But grandma cut it in half because she never had a dish put big enough to put a pot roast in. Okay, I got you now. But regardless, it is. It's tradition, and we do tend to pass these things around. And, you know, I, I'm as guilty of it as everybody else. But I have often said... If you're not slightly ashamed of the heathenry you were practicing five years ago, you're probably doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, and it's not necessarily by itself wrong to do things in a particular way, but I think it is to do things in a particular way without at least occasionally indulging in some critical thinking as to why you're doing it. Exactly. You know, examining where this comes from, what really is the root of the heathenry that you practice I think that's important for spiritual development. You know, we don't really have an off-the-shelf religion that you can just, you know, take right out of the box and plug in and it's up and running in five minutes. 
You're telling me that there's no Ossipope? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am. There is no Ossipope. So? There is no Ossipope for an Ossipope. And the Ossipope is an Ossipope. Well, guys, I hope you have enjoyed this. Yeah, I think I've, have. I think I've said, I think I've said just about all the intelligent stuff I have any capacity for right now. Yeah, That's and really I need good to go. Line, though. Yeah, I need to go take another pain. I'm due for another pain pill in eight minutes. So. Okay, and I'm due for going to bed. Yeah. So, uh, as always, I'm going to post up our show notes and stuff on the website in the morning because I'm pain pills, and we do have a list of sources. If you want to see all that heathenhistory.com and otherwise our podcast is everywhere if you had never listened to it go listen and we have a new episode in fact coming out on monday mm-hmm. so you want to hear that or you can go to youtube we've posted them there now and yeah sorry i'm i've started to hit the ramble point of of this so we are going to try to come do these things a little more during lockdown um now that i'm not ha- i'm only on call on weekends i'm not having to work on weekends Hopefully we can do this a little more often. Maybe sober this time. (laughs) Oh, come on, Ben. Let's not be ambitious. So I will say for the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wasail, y'all. Wasail, y'all.